Hi, I'm glad you're here. We're going to jump in. Uh, Shavuos is, is, is coming up, and um, Shavuos is one of those really funny holidays, because it's, first of all, it's really weird sounding, and second of all, it's, it's, um, there's probably no other day in the, in, the, in the Jewish calendar where there's such, a, um, such, an, such an odd correlation between huge importance and um, that which is sort of like widely unknown. And it's sort of, if you want to take a temperature of kind of like uh, Jewish life today, it's, uh, this, is, this is a good place to start because it, it, it points out this um, pretty giant kind of irregularity. And what I mean by that is that, um, that if you, the, the, the rank and file Jew today doesn't really know the holiday of Shavuos. They know Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, they know Hanukkah, Purim. But Shavuos is, is very esoteric. And yet, Shavuos is the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, which is the core event in Jewish history. And so that, that sort of uh, imbalance kind of sums up where we are at today, largely as a people, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Um, so, so anyway, uh, I, I just, uh, just want to talk a little bit about Shavuos and, and, and some other things. And before I get into um, sort of the giving of the Torah, and I, I came across something yesterday that I'm, I'm always fascinated by just huge things that, 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 that aren't popularized, or huge things to me anyway. So this, this, this seemed to uh, qualify in, in, that, in that category. I'm reading to you right now, this is uh, from a book called The Science of God by Gerald Schroeder. Uh, he's the author of the Genesis and the Big Bang, international lecturer, uh, very amazing scientist and, and thinker. And um, so this is uh, on page 194. He just talks about this event, and it's just one of these um, one of these crazy things, you know. So I mean, I'll just read you from the book if that's okay. So he says on March 23rd, 1989, there was no panic in the streets. No race for deep bomb shelters. Life went on as usual. Spring training was in full swing. No astronomer saw it coming. A week would pass before anyone discovered what had, or better said, what had not happened. So just to interrupt the flow for a moment here. Something happened on March 23, 1989, that not only did no one see it coming, but it wasn't until a week after it happened that anyone realize that it had happened or not happened. What, what was it? Okay. An asteroid was heading toward Earth. Not a giant the size of which killed off the dinosaurs. This more modest cousin was a mere kilometer in diameter. Now, he's being, he's being humorous there. A kilometer is basically a mile. Okay, so that's a mile a mile wide, a mild wide asteroid. It represented enough energy to destroy most of the life on any continent it struck. Something like the simultaneous explosion of 21, of 20,000 one megaton hydrogen bombs. Now you know, a hydrogen bomb is much greater than an atom bomb. 
Right now, right now, like, if there's nuclear warfare, God forbid, we would be using, for the most part, I, as far as I know, hydrogen bombs. What was dropped on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II, those were atom bombs. So what we have right now are way more powerful than what we dropped on the Japanese. So, now, this asteroid, one mile, one kilometer in diameter, would have been 20,000 one megaton hydrogen bombs. Okay? It whipped past us at 72,000 miles an hour. Crossing our exact path, but missing by a mere six hours. So that means that, that Earth was six hours away in its orbit from where this, from where this asteroid came. Okay? So now he's going to tell you, like, that might, well, you might go, well, that's six hours. And I can do a lot in six hours. That's not a, a near miss. But in terms of the cosmological clock, six hours is, is like, well, he's going to tell you in a second. That is like tuning an experiment to an error margin of one part in seven million million a precision rarely reached in the laboratory. So, I mean, because we're talking about this, this asteroid is, was probably around for billions of years. So we're talking about six hours. What is six hours to billions of years? You know? So what is it? It's one part in seven million million. So... So, if you have nothing else to feel good about today, feel good about the fact that an asteroid did not hit the Earth on March 23rd, 1989, and destroy an entire continent's worth of people. Right? And then who knows what would have happened if it, what the impact in terms of the Earth's gravitational, you know, um, one of the just, in, just way out things uh, I don't know if you heard this in the news from the, the Japanese earthquake was that it was so huge it actually threw the earth off its orbital pattern slightly but it, but it, but it was that big can you imagine what a one mile long asteroid going 72,000 miles an hour hitting the earth would have done to, to the earth's gravitational pull forget about the potentially millions of people that could have died so, 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 so there's a lot to say about this. There's a lot to say about this. In terms of just the precision that God is, 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 is running the world with. You know, I'll, t- I'll take it from this, you know, the huge level, this sort of like astronomical level, to like the totally personal level right now. Okay? So, so when my mother... Uh, it's actually her your site this this week. Um, so, so when she was really at the end of her life, her last days, um, I was living in Los Angeles. She was in, in in New York City, and I was, you know, as as much as I could, I was flying back and forth. And I remember I uh, I, I flew in one time and. Um, my mother, at this point, was too sick, really, to be in a hospital. You know, you know you're at the end when you're too sick to be in a hospital, you know. So, anyway, she was uh, at home in, in bed, and uh, 
and these were her last days, really. And um, I was staying, uh, I was staying across the street at a hotel, and and uh, I remember I, I, I landed at, I, I guess it was JFK or LaGuardia, one of these things, and. You know how it is, you have to wait for your luggage, and who knows if the, 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 the flight is going to be on time. It's, sometimes it's early, usually it's late, and you have to wait for your luggage, then you have to wait for a, a cab, and you know sometimes there's a long line just to be able to get into a, a cab, and then there's traffic, and there's traffic lights, and you make, you make the lights, you don't make the lights. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is that there, there's, so many, there's so many built-in potential obstacles to, to get there and, and, and so many variables when exactly you're going to get in even after you land in New York it's, it's up in the air is it going to be you know an extra hour could be you don't know so so I get to the I get to the hotel I walk into the lobby the elevator doors open and out walks someone that was a, an old friend from Jerusalem and I was amazed. I hadn't seen him in years. And we sat down on the couch in the lobby and we caught up a little bit. And I said, well, may, you know, let's get together. And he said, well, I'm actually on my way to St. Louis right now. And so I thought to myself, you know, look at all the things that, like I said, the line to the taxi, the, the baggage thing, the, the number of red lights. There was a few second window for me to see this person. And everything was so precise that I got there during that few second window in order to see that person. And so I I just sort of thought to myself, wow, look how precisely God runs the world. And now here's the point of why I'm bringing it up. And then I thought to myself, well, in terms of my mother's illness, is God running the world any, any less precisely in terms of that? In other words, that, that uh, unfortunately, you know, even though that's a, a sad event in my life right now, that, that that's also has a degree of precision to it as well. And no less precision. So, so you know, there's a, there's a question that people ask. There's a, there's a prayer that we say. Could I have one of the, 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 the black sidurim over there? The, the, there's a prayer that we say it's called in, in Hebrew we, we call it uh, Benching Gomel and in English thanks in English it's, it's uh, translated as the as the Thanksgiving prayer and um, and it's an interesting it's an interesting prayer it's, it's if your life has been saved right then you're supposed to say it like and and uh, I'll just read it to you, just so you know what it says. I'll read it in English. It says, Blessed are you, Hashem, King of the Universe, who bestows good things upon the guilty. Those who are a chayiv, is, is how you say it in Hebrew. Chayiv means you have a, a responsibility. So the, the, um, the translator is taking, is taking a little bit of liberty <laughs> with that word. Because if someone is chayiv, that means that they're they have a debt, basically, a karmic debt, if you will, you know, and, uh, and, and the prayer continues, who has bestowed every goodness upon me, you know, so, so the question is, 
There's a lot of times where people, and you, you say that in, in, in shul, if anyone uh, has been saved from a life-threatening uh, situation, this is a prayer that you say in shul by the Torah. So you can say it on Shabbos or on a Monday or on a Thursday. And then the congregation responds and says, Amen. May, who, he, may he who has bestowed goodness upon you continue to bestow every goodness upon you forever. So it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing that the, con- the whole congregation says, you know, God saved your life. You should continue to save your life. You should have only good things the rest of your life. It's kind of a really nice uh, back and forth. So when do we say this? You say this prayer um, if a person travels over an ocean, flies over an ocean, okay? Um, if a person travels through the desert, okay? Um, if someone is, is, recovers from a deathly illness, horrible illness, if someone's released from jail, very interesting. Um, and uh, those are the major categories. If there was a wall that, that collapsed and didn't collapse on top of you, there are all these type of things. Now, now, a lot of times people are in near car accidents and they want to know, should I bench Gomel? I think someone's at the door, actually. Um, uh, should I say, should I bench Gomel in this instance? Right? Because I wasn't hit. I was almost hit crossing the street, but I wasn't hit. Right? And then you have to ask a rabbi, and the rabbi will sort of like try and figure out like what the situation is. No? Sorry. But, but, but from my own life, I can tell you that there are instances where there are instances where you think, well, I should say I should bench Gomel, and the rabbi says no. You weren't hit. You weren't, you weren't hit by that car. Or your car was not in a car accident. I understand that. It was very scary. And you were saved. And, and something almost terrible happened. But don't bench Gomel. And the reason is, so why, I mean, I would imagine, you know what, if it's even a question, definitely bench Gomel. And, and, here's, and here's the logic on the other side. And this is the point I'm trying to bring out right now. The other side is, is that at a certain point, you have to realize that we have to bench Gomel every single day, all of us. Because we have no idea how many things that we're constantly being saved from. All of us. You know, there's something very interesting, which is that these categories that I told you about, crossing an ocean and crossing a desert and being released from prison, where, where, do, where, where do those come from? So, that's actually from one of the um, Psalms of King David. And, and, and it talks about these different categories of being saved from these different things. Now, what's striking is, we actually read that Psalm before Shabbos. And um, I don't know if that's every Nusach. I know Nusach Spar does it. I don't know if every Nusach does it. Um, but think about it for a moment, why the, why the rabbis introduced that. And there's a beautiful idea there. Why are we talking about all the different things that we were saved from right before we go into Shabbos? Because getting through the week is life-threatening. <laughs> you know, the idea is we're sort of benching Gomel because we're reading the psalm with all those categories that you say Gomel over, you know, this prayer of thanksgiving. 
after we've gotten through the work week, before we enter into Shabbos. Or, you know, you get into Shabbos and then, ah, uh, you know, um, I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, I think, you know, one of the things that he would do is he would, you know, he was, he was of the age where, where unfortunately, unfortunately right now we don't have the privilege of having as many people who survived um, Auschwitz and the, the various death camps with us today. Fewer and fewer. You know, during, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, they were all around, everywhere. And Reb Shlomo Karlovach would go up to them and, and uh, he would say, how did you make it through? How, how did you make it through? And I remember he told this story one time, I heard this. And, and he asked someone, how, how did you make it through? How did you survive? And this Yid told him, he said, you know how I made it through? You see, you see, right after, um, this, this psalm begins with, Hodu Lashem Kitov Kililam Kazdo. Praise God, thank God for His good, His kindness lasts forever. And then it goes into the different categories that you're saved from. That, that's, that's the official beginning of that psalm that we've just been talking about. So this Jew said that he remembers, I think it was the Bava Varevi, he remembers in, in Poland, being in shul Friday right before Shabbos, and the Bava Rebbe would be walking toward the, the the front of the shul to lead the prayers, and he'd be saying, "Hodu Lashem Kito Kazdo." Praise God, thank God for His good; His kindness lasts forever. He said that's how he made it through the concentration camps. Remembering the Rebbe saying that, you know, yeah, yeah. Amazing, 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 amazing. You see, there's something that, um, there's something that I, I want to try my best to communicate. And, and, it, and it's, it's the following. We, we've been talking about it a little bit, but not exactly in this way. You see, you know, I remember not too long ago, I have a friend, and he, he has his ups and downs spiritually. And, you know, he grew up religious, but, and he's still involved in the community and everything like that, but he's, he wouldn't be what you'd call the most observant person in the world, on, on a technical basis. But a very religious guy, though, and loves God, for sure. And, um, you know, I was talking to him about davening one time, and basically, he, he, he's, not, he's not so into davening. Or davening the full official service, right? And, and it's just this phrase that I'm getting to that he, uh, that he said to me. He just looked at me and kind of shook his head and said, a lot of words. <laughs> and, you know, it really is. There are a lot of words in the prayer book. A lot of words. And, by the way, the rabbis themselves... The, the rabbis themselves say that it's better to do less with more heart and intention, kavana, than it is to be sort of overwhelmed. You know? But this idea of a lot of words, you can really just use that as a window to just sort of like look at Judaism in general. I mean, do you know how much Torah there is? 
A lot of Torah. There is a lot of Torah. You know, oceans, like as in oceans of Torah, as in lifetimes, lifetimes of Torah. You know, really. And it's infinite. The Torah itself is infinite, so it's not getting smaller, by the way. There's that much, and it's getting bigger. You know, just so you know. So how do you... And the thing is, is that it's all true, and yet you've got lots of opposite teachings. Because the truth is, is that... And they're not contradictions. It's just in some instances, this is what you're supposed to do. But life is filled with extraordinary, weird situations that we find ourselves in. And then in that situation, that's what you're supposed to do. And it could be the opposite of what you're normally supposed to do. So you have to know what's the situation. Like, to give you one example, I heard Rabbi David Aaron tell this story. He said he was by the Kotel one time, years ago, and Reb Shlomo Karlovach was there, and he was teaching a group of people. You know, the Kotel is, the, Kotel is, uh, the, the holiest spot in, in Judaism. That's uh, also known as the Western Wall, and where the Holy Temple was. And we'll be again soon, Godway. And so, um, it was raining, and he was teaching, and someone, it was Shabbos, and someone uh, wanted to do something nice for him. This is a person who didn't have any background, uh, formal Jewish education. So what did they do? They had an umbrella with them. So one of the laws of Shabbos is that you don't open up umbrellas on Shabbos. Because one of the categories of, of work is, is building a tent, and, and opening up an umbrella is, is a tent. So that's making a tent. So you can't do that. So someone has a, a, a way of honoring a, a Torah teacher. So he was coming from a beautiful, good place. And it's raining, and it's on Shabbos, and here he is. He's teaching this group of people. So what does he do? He opens up an umbrella on Shabbos at the hotel, right? Where there's super religious people. And puts it over Reb Shlomo's head. Again, he couldn't have been coming from a better place. Right? People started yelling. Like, you know, because it's a, it was, and from their point of view, you've got to give them, you know, credit also. Because they, they also are trying to do the right thing. Here, what they see is a public desecration of Shabbos in Judaism's holiest place. So, this is a very difficult situation. Right? If you want to be balanced on both sides. I mean, so there are people who are yelling at Reb Shlomo, like, what are you doing? Now, Reb Shlomo didn't do anything, by the way. He was just standing there teaching. He didn't ask someone to open up an umbrella and put it over his head. So he didn't say anything to the person. And, of course, that, you know, prompted more yelling at him. And afterwards... Someone came up to him and said, why didn't you, why didn't you, you know, whatever. Now, imagine this person who held up the umbrella didn't know that he'd done anything wrong and also wasn't aware that all the yelling was really directed at him. Right? He was blind to that because if he knew he was doing something wrong, he wouldn't have done it to begin with. Right? He he did it from a standpoint of not knowing. So, Rav Shlomo told the person, the reason why I didn't say anything to him, because he said, at that point, the deed was already done. And when he would have realized that all of this outrage was actually directed at him, he would have been publicly humiliated, which is equivalent to killing someone. 
Now, for someone... Now, the reason why I'm, I marvel at that story, I marvel at that story, because for someone to have been able to have balanced all of the different issues at that going on, halakhically, in terms of Jewish law, in terms of human dignity, in terms of all the different categories, the laws of Shabbos, Morris Ayan, you know, which is the appearance of doing something wrong, all of, the, all of the various categories that were up in the air, for someone to have the breath of Torah and the, the breath of holiness, to be able to say the single worst thing right now, given the fact that the umbrella is already up, to do right now would be to publicly humiliate someone and therefore all the shouting can go on because that's not as bad as the crime of hurting this person. And even if they're yelling at me and even if my reputation becomes a mess because of this, whatever it is, that's okay. So that's, that's awesome. That's really awesome. And that's very rare to find a person who has a, a, a breath of knowledge which, which allows them to make a proper decision in a, in, a, in a crisis situation. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because, as I say, there is so much Torah. There's so much Torah. And there's so many opposite teachings. Things to do in a situation, and sometimes you don't do that thing in that situation, Right? Um, that how do you know how do you know what to do? How do you know what to do? And that's why having the simplicity of what I'm about to say is so absolutely important. You see, you can't understand the world unless you understand that God is good and that everything that's happening is coming from a good place. You see, we have, we have this thought expressed in a very succinct way, but you have to have a little bit of learning behind it in order to grasp it, which is we say in Shema Yisrael, we say, which is the declaration of the oneness of God, we say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem, meaning Yudke Vavke, which is the name of God which expresses you know, compassion, rachmim, mercy, right? Shema Yisrael, hero Israel, Hashem, Yudke Vavke, this level of compassion, Elokeinu, Elokeinu is, 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 the, is how Hashem operates within borders. Sometimes they use the word din or judgment or nature, right? And sometimes that, that means sort of like a degree of discipline. Hashem Echad. Going back to this name of mercy, Hashem is one. In other words, when we experience, when the world experiences this attribute of Elokeinu, this attribute <coughs> of judgment or din or discipline, that name is flowing from the name of Hashem Yudke Vavke. Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. In other words, it's all one. Even that force which is coming from a, from a place of discipline, as that's how we're experiencing it, is emanating from a place of goodness. So that's a deep way of understanding what the Shema is saying. But, let's get back to the bigger point. 
which is that God is good, and that everything that's happening is for the good. Now, it's funny, because, you know, I was sharing with a... (laughs) I don't know why this moment kind of stands out in my head. Sort of like a... uh, kind of a bittersweet kind of exchange that I had with someone this week. I was explaining to actually a rabbi, a a learned rabbi actually, uh, you know, kind of something that I I was experiencing, something difficult. And I was explaining to him just just how, how, how to maintain faith, not giving him a lesson, but just telling him what my thought process was of how to maintain faith. And he just looked at me, and I didn't say anything to him that he didn't know already. Right? On an intellectual level. He knew everything that I was saying to him already. But he said to me, he just kind of like, and yet he was struck. And I was sort of like, well, what are you struck by? You know, because I didn't say these words, but you know everything already that I just told you. So why are you reacting like I've said something new to you? Again, I didn't say those words, but that's kind of was the, the body language. And then he said back to me, he elaborated. He said, he said, because this is what we teach, but to live it is something else. You know? So, so you know, this is the old problem, the mind and the heart. The huge, they say, the biggest distance in the entire universe is between the mind and the heart. You can know it, but if it's not in your heart, on the most important level, you don't even know it yet. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so hard because, because as much as we think that it goes from the top down, that the mind tells the heart what to feel, it's usually the heart tells the mind what to think. You know? And uh, there's an example of that in our... There's an example of that that we say every single day in the Shema. We say... We say, don't follow after your heart and your eyes. We say, V'lo sasuru don't follow after your heart and the eyes. And, and, and why? Because here's, what, here's the way, the normal order that we think happens. We think, like, let's say we're driving and we see a billboard and our eyes become very desirous and that sends a message to our heart to really want that. But you want to hear something much deeper? It says, don't follow after your heart and eyes. Shouldn't it be the opposite? Because the normal process is we see something and then we desire it. But you want to hear something so deep? It says don't follow after your heart first in your eyes. Because if you didn't desire it, you wouldn't have seen it. If your heart didn't want it to begin with, you wouldn't have even seen it. Or if you saw it, it would have just bounced off of you and made no impression whatsoever. You see, which tells you that the heart is the battleground. The heart is the battleground. You can be the biggest Einstein in the entire world. You know, and if it's not in your heart, there's just this fundamental disconnect. And we've known this forever, by the way. This is not new information. We've known this forever. 
And I just saw, you know, it says in... One of the cool things, you can see it in the Gomorrah, is that the, the, wise, the wise men of Greece, like the philosophers of Greece, would meet with the, with the rabbis of the, of the Talmud. And they would have, like, you know, like, discussions with them. And there's one instance where they were having one of these things where they were, you know, asking like the deepest questions in the world, you know, about how God runs the world and all the rest. And they took a break for a meal and the Greeks were drinking and two of them got into a fight and one took a knife and killed the other. And the rabbis were like aghast and they came up and they said, you were just philosophizing about the deepest things. How how could this have happened? And... And, and, and one of them said back, you know, you know, while we're philosophizing, we're philosophers. You know, in other words, that's <laughs> the idea that this sort of like should govern our entire lives. Well, you know, when I'm being deep, I'll be deep. Saturday night, Saturday night, let's be real, Right? So, so again, again, the battleground is the heart. And that's why it's so important. And if, if you want to hear more, more on this, by the way, I gave a whole talk just on, on this subject, which was, it, it's on the website, TorahOnitunes.com, called um, uh, a, a Guide to Happiness. And um, we go into more into these ideas. But... Um, but anyway, in terms of just trying to trying to get your mind around all of the oceans of Torah and not to get lost in the shuffle of all of the different teachings, what, what, what I'm telling you, everyone needs to know is that God is good. You, you have to know that. You have to know that. Because life is confusing enough. But if you don't know where everything is stemming from, then a person is just going to be lost forever. And that doesn't mean that life isn't difficult, by the way. If it's coming from a place of goodness, it doesn't mean that it's any less difficult to experience. You know, you see people who are recovering from surgery. And by the way, there's all sorts of surgeries. My father, Oliver Shalom, who was a psychologist, practicing psychologist for 50 years, you know, he would talk about divorces and the ends of relationships. He would talk about it as social surgery. Meaning to say that, you know, here you have two people who they can walk and they can talk and they can eat and they can run and they can go to the gym and they look very, very healthy. But if you don't think that they've just been through this, like, very serious surgical procedure, then you don't have the eyes to see what's actually going on. You know, and then you have other people who, momish, they're in a hospital bed and they've had their leg cut off. My dad had his leg cut off. And we knew 100% his life has been saved. So you say, well, look at the goodness of God. Well, yeah, he got another five years of life because his leg got amputated. He absolutely got another five years of life. It stopped the cancer from spreading. 
It was a good thing. And by the way, it didn't stop it. My dad had the greatest attitude in the world. He said, he said well, he, said he, he spoke about experiencing cancer as an adventure. <laughs> he used that word. And he traveled all over the world, by the way, after he got his leg cut off. He didn't let it stop him at all. But, but what I'm saying is, is that there's no fundamental contradiction between difficulty and goodness. That's the point. That's the point. We, in today's society, see something as difficult, and because we live in a cult of leisure and a cult of comfort, there has to be a fundamental contradiction between anything that's difficult and anything that's good. It's an open contradiction. And yet that's not reality. It isn't reality. You know, I remember when I was losing my hair, and I lost it on the younger side. I had a good friend who was a very stylish guy. And I'm trying to remember his exact words to me. He said, he said, keep your hair short, neat, and mind your own business. <laughs> it just, you know, he, he was being like a little like, you know, Sergeant Friday, like, you know, dragnet. You know what I mean? But it was like, he was being humorous. But it, it's like, life is difficult. You know what? Get up. Do your work. Mind your own business. You know? Just get through it. Just get through it. You know, one of the things that I read just recently that's giving me a lot of strength is, I think it's in the name of Woody Allen. I, I, that's what I read anyway, which is 80% of life is just showing up. <laughs> is it Woody Allen? Yeah? Okay, good. So, uh, uh, 90%? Okay, good. 90%. Even better. And I, I love that. I love the fact that it's sort of like, you know what? We think, okay, I got out of bed in the morning, so mazel tov. You got out of bed in the morning, mazel tov. That's 90% right there. You did it, 90%. That's, a, that's in most places, that's an A. You already got an A. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. You know, um, I don't know what my uh, 11-year-old just, uh, I don't know what got him on this topic. But he was just picking years, you know, this Shabbos. He was going, he was just asking, what's the best thing that happened to you in 2004? And I said, you know what, the best thing that happened to me, because I had no idea. I'm really bad at correlating um, years with events in my life. I just, I, I don't think of like, oh, like there are a lot of people who like are really great at that. You know, they just think of years and what happened during that year. Not me. I, they're two separate things. So I have no idea, honestly, what happened to me in, 19, in 2004. But, um, but I said to him, and I didn't... The reason why this was meaningful to me is because I didn't think before I said it. I said, you know what? In 2004, the best thing that happened, every single day, I woke up and got out of bed. <laughs> Every single day in 2004. <laughs> so, you know. All right. Uh, the truth is, I wanted to do something on Shavuos. Actually, there, there is uh, one thing that does connect to what we've been talking about. 
Let me just say this. By the way, I highly recommend everyone uh, going through these pages on their own. It's in Gomorrah Shabbos, Nesekta Shabbos in the Talmud, um, page 88. You've got all these awesome um, teachings about the giving of the Torah. And very, very deep. And it's all Agadita. So it's like Midrashim, amazing, amazing Midrashim, one after the other. And it's really worth just picking up the Art Scroll uh, Gomorrah, this volume. It's actually volume three. It says Tractate Shabbos. Just getting that volume um, and going through these pages, page 88. It's worth the price of the whole thing. And anyway, you'll have an extra volume of Gomorrah in your house. Um, but this is a line from it. Just zero in on this and then we'll finish up. Um, this is from this is a teaching from Rabbi uh, Yeshua ben Levi, one of the main uh, rabbis of the Talmud. He said that, um, and this is Peiches Amid Beis, 88b, b3 in the in the Arts for Gemara. Um, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi said, with every single statement that emanated from the mouth of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, meaning every time Hashem spoke at Mount Sinai. Now, our tradition, by the way, is that God gave the first two commandments, and then Moshe gave the next eight. And um, if you look at the gematria like of the word Torah, the word Torah is 611. That's what Moshe said, 611. And then God said the first two commandments. That adds up to 613. That's how they come up with the count of, of 613 mitzvahs, by the way, in the Gemur. So the first two were said by Hashem. Hashem said the first one, and Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi brings here that the souls of the Jewish people flew out of their bodies. We, we, we talk about that teaching a lot. If you want to know where it is, it's right here. So, so then, the rabbis ask a great question, which is that, well, we know Hashem spoke again. How could He have spoken again if the Jews were all dead? Because <laughs> if everyone's souls are out of their body, you've got a lot of corpses there. So he says, no. And here's the, here's the line that I want to just discuss a little bit. Um, how could they have received the second statement? That's the question. So he answers, God brought down the dew, the tal, with which he will resurrect the dead in the future. And he resurrected them. And then they came back to life and they got the second one. And their bodies, their souls flew out of their bodies again and he resurrected them for a second time. And then that's when the Jews said, you know, I always make a joke that, you know, in California anyway, you have to have two pieces of ID God gave us two pieces of ID. Everyone said, okay, it's God for sure. Moshe, you get the rest of the Torah for us. You know? And then Moshe takes over and then, and then continues with, with the remaining uh, mitzvahs. So, I was just looking at this and I was thinking about it. Let me just read it to you one more time. God brought down the dew with which he will resurrect the dead in the future. And he resurrected them. So I had a question on that. Which is, why didn't it just say God resurrected them with dew? 
Do you hear the question? In other words, we know that um, we have, and this is, by the way, one of the fundamental beliefs of Judaism, and the Gemara is like very, very, very strong about this teaching. It says that if you deny this teaching, you actually basically cut yourself off from the next world. One of the main teachings in Judaism, even though it's not largely discussed, which is belief in the mass resurrection of the dead. That's, that's, we believe that. We absolutely believe that, that life does not just stop with death. Or as we say, as I heard Rabbi Shlomo say, that, that death is for a moment and life is forever. Okay? So, so uh, how is that going to happen? And by the way, science supports this today. We've got cloning, where you can take DNA from, from a bone, and you can recreate the entire king again. So, science is catching up with Torah in terms of how this will be done. And by the way, if you posit an omnipotent God, an all-powerful God, nothing's hard for God anyway. So, and, and one of the Kalvachomers, one of the logical progressions that the rabbis make is that it's much harder to make a person out of nothing. God makes us out of nothing, more or less. Then once we've already been created to bring us back to life, is less work. Right? I mean, in other words, if you, can, if you believe that you exist at all, how did you come to exist? God brought you into existence. So your heart stops beating. Okay, so he makes your heart beat again. It, it's much less work, is what I'm trying to say. Like, in our minds, we think of it, oh, wait, it's like, once I'm dead, it's over. Yeah. You know, to resurrect the dead, uh, that's impossible. But if you think about it logically, the real impossible thing already happened. This is just like a minor repair. So... And there are many more teachings about just the logic of resurrection, by the way. You know, they say, they talk about it again in the Gomorrah, that if you, or resuscitation sometimes people like to say, if you, if you plant a seed in the ground, the seed decays, right? That's like the body decaying when we're buried in the ground. And then what happens? A green shoot sprouts up. Life emerges from that thing that was buried and decayed. So that's another example of, uh, of what we're talking about. Okay? But anyway, so that's going to happen in the end of days. So here we're learning a lot of information here in this one statement. Let me read it to you one more time so you have it fresh in your mind. God brought down the dew with which he will resurrect the dead in the future. Okay? So we know God's going to resurrect the dead in the future. This seems to suggest that he's got the dew ready. He's got it ready, because it says he took from the dew that he's going to use to resurrect from the dead. Right? So that dew already exists. So he dips into that pot, and he's using it now. But does God have any shortage of resurrecting dew? (laughs) What does he have to draw from that pot from? This is my question. Why not just say God resurrected the dead? Or God used do to resurrect the dead. Why are we saying God took from that storehouse that he's going to resurrect the dead from the end of days and he used it now? So there's a lot of stuff that's there's a lot of stuff that's here. Now remember, when we received the Torah at Mount Sinai we reached the level of Adam and Chava before they ate from the tree of knowledge. Which means we reached the level before death was brought into the world. 
You see, when God resurrects the dead at the end of days, we're going to live forever. That's eternal life. So now think about it. Oh, it's getting deeper. Wait a second. When we receive the Torah, we reach the level of before death entered into the world. That's the do. That's the category of the now you live forever do. And that's what we got then. And do you remember what happened? Do you remember the events? We've talked about it a lot. Do you remember the events? After we worship the sin, or after we worship the golden calf, according to the Ramban, it says we gave up our jewelry. That's what it says in the, in the text. What does that mean, our jewelry? These are the crowns that were placed on our head. This was the eternal life that we had been given. We gave up our immortality as part of our tshuva, as part of our attempt to fix what had happened. Basically, the parallels between eating from the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden and the worshipping of the golden calf at Mount Sinai are eerily precise. I've, I've given a couple of talks on it. They're, they're, it's like in lockstep. It's like basically the same event that happened. But anyway, it was the idea that that was it. That was going to be the resurrection of the dead right there. That was going to be it. We were going to start living forever from that point on. Alright? But, but obviously, it, it didn't happen. We, 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 we messed it up at that, at that stage. Which, the truth is, is that it wasn't, we weren't really destined for it at that point yet. That, that still is a later stage. But I want to say something else. Which is that, which is that the Torah allows you to get through all the obstacles in one's life, allows you to live forever. In other words, now I'm talking on a deeper level. Not in terms of just actually staying alive right now. But maintaining life, if you will, through all of life's difficulties. In other words, the Torah itself is that do which resurrects us. The Torah itself is that thing that allows us to get through life. You know, we talk about, there's a, a phrase, I heard it, actually heard it on, in, in a parody of uh, 12-step programs on, uh, on Saturday Night Live, but it's such a, I think they use it, and I think it's a great phrase, but I, I learned it in a strange way. And it was, compare and despair. Right? If you compare your life to someone else's, it just, there is a competition, but it's between us and ourselves. It's not between us and other people. So here are some of the downsides of comparing and despairing. One is the obvious. You say, well, that person's got it so much more together than I do. That person has so much more bracha and blessing in their life than I do, and everything like that. But you see, if that were just the end of that thought process, it would be bad enough. But then I think what happens is the person then says, but you know something? They have some things, I have some things that they don't have. So now you've gone from depression to an act of gaiva and superiority and and arrogance. (laughs) And you start thinking, well, I have this and they don't have that. And I have this and they don't have that. And now you're content. But what are you content with? This act of arrogance and superiority. So you've lost on both sides. You see... You know, I once heard the way the, the Yetzirah works is, 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 
is really, is really terrible, which is if someone comes up to you and says the community has a great need, and it is a great need, the person often says, who am I, who am I to address such a great need? Right? So all of a sudden the person becomes very humble when they're being called to action. Right? And they remove themselves from the responsibility. Then, let's say that same person is insulted by someone. Does he know who I am? <laughs> right? All of a sudden, that, that great sense of self, which was mysteriously absent when they were being asked to do something on behalf of other people, all of a sudden rises up. But for what point? Just in order to be insulted. Right? So, so comparing with other people, it, it leads to depression. And then, what's the salve? What's the ointment which re- re- removes the depression? Arrogance. It's a lose-lose. It's a lose-lose. So, so just don't... So it's like, God has a lot of accounts. A lot of bank accounts. You're one bank account, person's another bank account. You know, one bank account doesn't have anything to do with the other bank account. Just, it's, 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 a, it's our thing. That's just what it is, you know. We just have to make it through. And the Torah allows us to make it through because it gives us the biggest perspective in the entire world. Because ultimately it's not about us. We're here to fix the world. We're here to really teach the world the oneness of God. We're here to be good to each other. And, and these are the goals of our life. And sometimes it's harder and sometimes it's easier. You know, that's, that's just the reality of it. Sometimes within years, some years are hard, some, some years are easier. Some days are hard, some days are easier. Some hours within a day are hard, some hours within a day are easier. Some minutes within an hour are harder. Some minutes within an hour are easier. This is, this is what it is. This is what it is. And we just have to keep our hair short, neat, and mind our own business. Okay, have a great week. <laughs>